You ready? I was born ready. Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. This is David French, beginning by dunking on co-host Sarah Isger. (laughs) For day after day, for week after week, Supreme Court expert, Supreme Court watcher, Uh Supreme Court Uh nerd, Sarah Isger kept predicting a case uh, called Espinoza. And for day after day, week after week... (laughs) Month after month, that case did not issue from this court. And the first day, the first day that I said it was going to happen, it happened. Now, you might think this is a little bit cruel that I'm going to begin the podcast uh, by dunking on my co-host, but I actually received multiple emailed requests (laughs) for just that. Look, the investigation's still out. We don't know whether you were sending bribes to the court to push it. We don't know what baked goods may or may not have exchanged hands. Subpoenas will be issued forthwith. I expected more than fake news, conspiracy theorizing <laughs> from you, Sarah. But yes, we did. We did get we did. an important religious op- uh, liberty opinion in Kendra Espinoza at Al versus Montana Department of Revenue dealing with Blaine amendments and religious education and public funding. But here's um, what I'm curious. I mean, we'll we'll get into all of this, but unlike June Medical, where you might not have liked the outcome, but you liked some of the reasoning, I'll be very curious on this opinion where I think you will, you, David, liked the outcome, but I'm not sure how much you liked the reasoning in some of this. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, that we'll 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 get into that. Don't jump ahead. I'm still in preview mode. Um <laughs> So we're we're also going to talk about um, what where we what are we thinking sort of a grab bag potpourri what are we thinking twenty four hours after June medical after we've had a time to um, think about not just the legal implications of the ruling but the political implications of the ruling and the footnotes and, and the footnotes <laughs> and some of the things that you know people are saying about it um, so we're going to talk about that and then we're going to follow up because Sarah challenged me she challenged me uh, yesterday. Is there a movie you don't like? And oh, yes, Sarah, there are movies, plural, (laughs) movies, plural, that many people liked that I did not. We'll see about that. Well, uh, let's let's start with Espinoza. Um, You've been diving in deeply. Uh, I have been diving in almost as deeply. I think you've got uh, thoughts on the whole thing from start to finish. I've got things, uh, thoughts on the whole thing from start to mostly finish. So why don't, <laughs> why don't you kick us off and um, describe case, ruling, and your initial thoughts? <sighs> okay. So this was a case that uh, dealt with the Montana legislature passing a scholarship program to provide parental and student choice in education. So what it did was it provided scholarship money that could be used at a religious school. It could also be used at a non-religious school. It can be used anywhere you'd like. But the Montana Constitution included a no-aid provision. This banned the use of public funds to aid in the support of any school controlled in part or in, uh, in whole or in part by any church, sect, or denomination, whatever. 
This is known as a baby Blaine Amendment, a state Blaine Amendment, whatever you want to call it. And we'll get into some of the history of that as the court did as well. Uh, But these were widely passed in about 30 states at the end of the 1800s to target uh, Catholicism. So it goes to the Montana Supreme Court, and they're left with what they believe is a decision between uh, they can't just strike down the scholarship for religious schools because that would violate Supreme Court precedent, the First Amendment, free exercise clause, et cetera. But uh, they can't violate the Montana Constitution. So what the Montana Supreme Court does is they invalidate the entire scholarship program for everyone. So now it doesn't discriminate. Uh, so at the argument, which the reason that I kept predicting was that this happened in January, it's been a really long time. Uh, at the argument you had, uh, justice Kagan, for instance, saying, I've always understood in these kinds of cases that the harm is the perceived or alleged or actual discrimination, but there is no discrimination at this point going on. Is there? Because nobody got the scholarship anymore. Uh, And then you had Justice Breyer talking about the public school system and uh, what's the difference between this case, if you win, and the same with the public schools. They have to give it to parochial schools too. What's the difference? So a lot of hand-wringing from the liberal justices. So what happened today? 5-4, not a huge surprise there. Uh, And man, the Chief Justice, just very, very busy this week. So we have another Chief Justice Roberts opinion in which he invalidated the Montana Supreme Court's invalidation and brought it back to the status quo, uh, basically saying that the no-aid provision of the Montana Constitution was unconstitutional and that, therefore, the scholarship program, which could be given to religious schools and non-religious schools, to private schools in general, now exists again, per the Montana legislature. Um, But it was kind of messy, David. It was... uh, a little bit of a messy opinion. I thought the dissent scored more points than they normally do on something like this. And then we had some concurrences. I mean, there was a reason this took so long. So you have five, four on the Roberts opinion. Fine. Then you have Thomas filing a concurrence with Gorsuch. That's uh, (laughs) in which he wants the first amendment basically not to be incorporated against the States on the establishment clause part. Right. And thinks that the States should be able to, uh, established religion, quote unquote, because that was the intention of the founders during the Bill of Rights. He has actually some good points there. Then you have uh, a spicy Alito concurrence, which we'll just have to dive into in its more fullness. Uh, (laughs) It's extra spicy to me because it's based on Ramos, that non-unanimous jury verdict opinion from earlier this term. And Alito's like, I lost that argument and now I'm going to hold it in your face. Yes. Uh, so that's pretty fun. And then you have a Ginsburg dissent with Kagan, a Breyer dissent with Kagan joining part one, and a Sotomayor dissent as well. Lots of fun to be had splashing around in this pool. David, what were your initial reactions? So my initial reaction was I thought that the Chief Justice's opinion was very uh, straightforward. It was... Uh, and and I thought quite effective at dealing with the argument that the fact that the Montana Montana Supreme Court struck down the entire program rendered um, removed the non discrimination the discrimination problem because what what Justice Roberts was saying was that 
the discriminatory constitutional provision is not ameliorated by a non-discriminatory remedy. Um, that that uh, the, the provision itself, which is so closely targeting religion, is going to have to be evaluated irrespective of the remedy from the Supreme Court. And, and so I thought that that was all quite straightforward and quite in keeping with the emerging line of post-Smith free exercise jurisprudence that is basically saying, if you're going to single out religious status for different and inferior treatment, you're going to have a very difficult time uh, prevailing at the Supreme Court. If you're a state that has singled out religious status for different treatment, it's, it's going to be a bad day for you. Now, <laughs> on, on second reading, well, not second reading, second thought as I'm reading, I began to notice something um, that was very conspicuous by its absence, Sarah. And, and my friend Casey Maddox beat me to tweeting this out. Darn you, Casey, in your B-minus Twitter feed that <laughs> occasionally has some good content. Um, my friend Casey Maddox tweeted out the words that did not appear in the opinion, and I did find and replace Employment Division v. Smith. Mm-hmm. You had an entire Supreme Court opinion grounded in free ex- a debate in, in consideration of the free exercise clause without reference to the most important free exercise jurisprudence of the last 30 years, which was Scalia's opinion in Employment Division v. Smith, which in many ways gutted the free exercise clause, um, really radically transformed free exercise jurisprudence. And it was not mentioned at all. Now, it's that won't stay. That that kind of ignoring of Smith cannot uh, sustain itself because next term Supreme Court's going to hear an opinion, uh, hear a case called Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, where the status of Smith is being put front and center. But what I had this interesting question in my mind as I'm reading the opinion is Smith being lemoned, uh, <laughs> and by that I mean. There's this uh, establishment clause case uh, that established what's called the Lemon Test that uh, is still technically law, but hasn't really been applied in the establishment clause context for a really long time. And people really wonder if if it's even viable. Um, Thomas refers to it as, in this opinion, as this court's infamous test in Lemon. Yes, exactly. So I, I'm starting to wonder if, is this a sign on the narrow basis, there is nothing surprising about this outcome. I thought it was going to be 5-4 on exactly these grounds, but the waving away of Smith as if it's not even worth discussing, it wasn't even worth discussing to them, um, makes me wonder if this is forecasting a more robust treatment of the free exercise clause or a continuing direction, a continuing move in the direction of a more robust uh, reading of the free exercise clause. So those are my initial thoughts. I don't think there's any question on that point, Uh, not just because Smith was missing, but because I felt like it's interesting that you thought he handled why the Montana Supreme Court's uh, invalidation did not make it neutral because I thought he kind of gave that short shrift and I thought uh, Ginsburg's dissent pointed out some really problematic parts of stepping in and telling a su- state Supreme Court what they can and can't do uh, once they've remedied it in their own way. Um, but 
you know, there were some other things in the Roberts opinion worth pointing out. One of which is that uh, he says, many parents exercise that right by sending their children to religious schools, a choice protected by the Constitution. See Pierce v. Society of Sisters, a 1925 case uh, that really created substantive due process in a lot of ways and was cited in Roe. On the one hand, uh, the constitutional right, uh, you know, to not attend public school. Interesting, probably something that you'd be in favor of, but that case in particular, interesting that he would cite it. Um, yeah, it is interesting. It is interesting, especially considering there are other, you know, this goes back to, um, this actually goes back to one of our early podcasts um, a little bit. Remember, we had a fun discussion about homeschooling. Yes. And, yes. And uh, Pierce via Society Sisters figures prominently in the debate over homeschooling, for example. Yeah. yeah, so that was interesting. But overall, so there's Locke versus Trinity Lutheran at issue here. And that discussion, those are two Supreme Court cases, Trinity Lutheran uh, being quite recent. And that's the one that the Roberts opinion is like, yes, look to Locke. I mean, look to Trinity Lutheran. Uh, and then Locke becomes pretty cabin to its facts. Yeah. Locke is a case about uh, a student who was looking to use scholarship money to uh, get a theological degree. And the scholarship yeah. specifically said you can use it to go to a religious school, but you can't use it to get a degree in theology because we've just decided that taxpayer funding isn't going to go to that type of specific religious training and instruction. And the court upheld that. And what Robert said in this opinion was that is religious use of public mm -hmm. funds. It was not that it was disfavoring religious status. And he really tries to make that distinction that Trinity Lutheran, a school uh, that wanted to use publicly available funds to repave a playground. I assume with that like squishy bouncy stuff, which is so nice. And yeah, how many nice. scrapes and scars on my legs would I not have if we had had squishy pavement? But then on you our wouldn't playground. be as, a, as tough as you are now. Oh, so true. So true. Yeah. Then uh, that they said was clearly disfavoring Trinity Lutheran because of their status as a religious school. And of course, paving their playground had nothing to do with religious instruction. This case falls somewhere in between. On the one hand, it's not that you're getting a theology degree by uh, sending your children to an elementary school that happens to be religious, but there will be religious instruction at that school. So it's not exactly a playground equipment either. And right. Roberts, you know, almost with an eye roll is like, well, it's clearly much more like a playground than it is like a, a theology degree, which... You know, the dissent points out like, wait, I'm not sure it's quite as easy as you think it is. And I think people reading it would be like, well, huh. Um, so the religious status versus religious use was very interesting to me. And uh, some of the concurrences point out, Gorsuch in particular, that he does not think that that's a distinction we want to be making. And he would just include it all and probably just overturn Locke is what that looked like to me. I read this as... I, I like the phrase you use, cabined to its facts. Yeah. I think the current court in the current composition does not decide Locke in, yeah, that, yeah. in the same way. No. And so I think that Roberts, for whatever reason, was unwilling to overrule Locke. And now Locke just well, he, stands. He, he had just said yesterday that he was deciding a whole opinion on stare decisis. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so it'd be so he, that on a Tuesday to say, and by the way, Locke's gone. That would have been a little bit rich. That would have been a little bit. Yeah. So I, I basically, I think now the 
All LOCK stands for is the proposition that you do not have an entitlement to state funds to get a theology degree. Yeah. That's that's LOCK. Um, and what, you know, the bottom line here now, and I, I agree with you, I think the status versus use distinction is one thing that I, I had highlighted in my, in my mind is, huh, I can see that causing some confusion as time <laughs> yeah. goes by. Um, but I, I, I actually agree with the dissent that it's much more, um, this is more lock than Trinity Lutheran. Right. Uh, I, I have been the chairman of the school board of a religious school, and I can tell you that it's a lot more theology instruction than it is playground resurfacing. <laughs> there, and any religious school worth its weight is doing a heck of a lot more theology instruction than it is doing pr- uh, playground resurface, resurfacing. And not that there aren't sports programs and playgrounds and, you know, biology class and blah, 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 but there are there is an intentional, a good religious school is suffused from the ground up with religious instruction. And so this is more Locke, and I look at Locke as not overturned, but f- as you said, cabined to its facts. And and that's a way y'all who are not familiar with this uh, with this um, kind of uh, Supreme Court method, it's a way to ma- render something irrelevant without overturning it. Um, it's like putting it in the top shelf of your linen closet where you can't reach, and like you did get out the ladder to put it up there. You're not throwing it away. But basically, by getting out the ladder and putting it up there, you are admitting to yourself you're never coming back for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you know something is cabin to its facts when either the citations to the case start to disappear entirely, or um, it's always this is not that. <laughs> so a good, yeah. I, I think a good example of a case that has been cabin to its to its facts, and it's so cabin to its facts that nobody even really remembers it much is this case called CLS v. Martinez. I do not was, remember it. <laughs> yeah, see? Sarah, it's been cabined. This is Christian um, Legal Services? Christian Legal Society, yes. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, yeah. vaguely. And and it basically now is stands for the, in the completely unique circumstance where a law school requires every student group to be open to all comers without regard to any kind of discriminatory factor at all then they can do that, which is exactly one policy at one law school in the country, um, <laughs> which makes you wonder why they took that case, uh, if that was going to be the the result. But again, cabin to its facts, starting to feel like Locke is cabin to its facts, and I'm starting to f- feel like Smith is getting limited. Um, and I, those are sort of my two big takeaways. So to look at some of the other opinions, uh, because I thought the Roberts opinion and Roberts does this very well, right? His opinion is tied up in a little bow. There's not a lot of, as, as someone who has a newborn, everything, all of my analogies will relate to him for the time being, I guess. But like, <laughs> uh, Roberts opinions feel like a nice swaddle. They're comfortable. You, there's not a lot of room to wiggle around in them. And you leave the opinion going like, Oh yeah. Okay. That, yeah. Fine. And then you get into these concurrences and dissents that are much messier, unswaddled babies slapping themselves in the face. <laughs> Uh, but I do want to mention one line from the Roberts opinion that I thought was such a side eye to Breyer, uh, that it was worth mentioning. Cause I, there's not a lot of snark or side eye in Roberts opinions, but it says justice Breyer building on his solo opinion in Trinity Lutheran would adopt <laughs> a quote, flexible context specific approach that quote may well vary end quote from case to case. I mean, 
building on his solo opinion. Ouch. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Building. Um, yeah, I, I noticed that as well. Yeah, that was I, fascinating. I laughed out loud. So, okay, we'll go in order. The Thomas concurrence. Um, let me just read a part of it, and then I want to get your reaction to this pretty radical, would, would be radical now idea of unincorporating the Establishment Clause against the states. Thus, the modern view, which presumes that states must remain both completely separate from and virtually silent on matters of religion to comply with the Establishment Clause, is fundamentally incorrect. Properly understood, the Establishment Clause does not prohibit states from favoring religion. They can legislate as they wish, subject only to the limitations in the state and federal constitutions. So, as a matter of original public meaning of the Establishment Clause, that's an, he really walks through the history there pretty well. I mean, this is yep. a situation where various states had state-established religions. Um, they, they, uh, until surprisingly recently in American history, there were actual public funds in the state of Massachusetts, or I'm sorry, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts that were appropriated <laughs> for clergy. Um, so as a matter of historical fact, um, Thomas's quite right about the intent of the Establishment Clause. It was to block anything like the creation of the kind of establishment that existed in Great Britain at the time of the founding of the United States of America. I mean... um, And just generally the Protestant versus Catholic wars that have been raging for 500 years. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was sort of to each his own at the state level. Sort of not not so much at the individual level. It was at the state level. And then his argument, I think, about incorporation is that um, the Establishment Clause, if it's going to be incorporated, should incorporate at, at the meaning that it w- existed at when the Constitution is ratified as, as incorporating against a state establishment of a religion as opposed to this sort of lemon test, et cetera, et cetera, that exists now. And he, I think he's got some... He makes some really good points, particularly about the way Establishment Clause jurisprudence evolved um, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and into the 80s, where there is this weird uh, concept of offended observer standing, yeah. which, was, which was actually a religious, a, a, a hostile to religion special standing rule that the Supreme Court developed where unlike any other, almost any other area of law, the mere fact that I'm offended by a government action or a government policy or I observe a government action or a government policy uh, and it offends me, does not give me the ability to walk into court. But when it came to the Establishment Clause, if I saw a, a cross monument or a cross memorial to fallen soldiers and I'm offended that it's in the shape of a cross, I could go to, I could sue. Uh, sometimes even if I'm not anywhere near it, if I just drove by it once um, and was offended and live a hundred miles away, I can sue, which was actually a quite anti-religious, obscure anti-religious doctrine that I think Thomas was exactly right to call out. Um, And his whole point is that the free exercise clause has been suffering to its establishment clause, big brother, uh, the free exercise clause, although enshrined explicitly in the Constitution, rests on the lowest rung of the court's ladder of rights, and precariously so at that. Returning the Establishment Clause to its proper scope will not completely rectify the court's disparate treatment of constitutional rights, but it will go a long way toward allowing free exercise of religion to flourish as the framers intended. 
I look forward to the day when the court takes up this task in earnest. But here's my question, David. Could Montana have simply uh, established, if you will, their religion as atheism? (laughs) Uh, Well, not under the traditional reading of the Establishment Clause if you are going to incorporate it. Um, But if you are not going to incorporate it... If you follow Thomas's concept here of unincorporation so that states can establish religion and fund religious instruction where they see fit, um, why couldn't Montana then have their no aid provision? I think, I think honestly, it potentially could. Uh, I, I see that, you know, if you're going to say you're not going to incorporate the establish, it seems to me that his reasoning is you're not going to incorporate the establishment clause, or he would raise that as an open question, but you are going to incorporate the free exercise clause. Um, that gets complicated. Yeah. That gets complicated. Um, and then these Blaine amendments, you know, have <laughs> their history becomes both more and less relevant. Right. Exactly. So I, I would not have signed on to the Thomas concurrence. Um, I think he raises some very interesting points about the original intent of the Establishment Clause. And Sarah, trivia uh, point, I'm... One of I have successfully filed an establishment clause lawsuit from the right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I had a case against Georgia Tech um, back in like 2006. They had a uh, diversity program where they mandated teaching students, in essence, ranking various denominations and endorsing some and condemning others. That's odd. Yeah, it was very odd. I mean, you, 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 I remember seeing this and going, you know, look, I have a pretty original public meaning view of the Establishment Clause, but this violates that. <laughs> this violates Ranking? that. I mean, the short, the short answer is Georgia Institute of Technology would have much rather you be Buddhist than Baptist. Um, it was that very, very clear. And, and I got a, in an injunction uh, in federal I court. I would think against. so. Yeah, yeah. So, no, well, I I dissent from Thomas's dissent. <laughs> so, then you have the Alito concurrence, which I said was extra spicy because Alito just like man, wrong side of the bed this term over and over. <laughs> so, okay, back to Ramos, which was decided uh, what now? I've lost all track of time. 2 months ago, this was the non-unanimous jury verdicts uh, violated the 6th amendment, so it incorporated that part of the Sixth Amendment against the states, Louisiana and Oregon. And we talked about it, and I thought it was pretty interesting. I said it would have some implications down the road. Here we are. We're down the road. And we have a nice little stop sign. We can pull off into the convenience store. And, oh, look, there's Justice Alito. And he says, um, the no-aid provision in the Montana Constitution, the origin, which we've talked about being sort of this anti-Catholic baby Blaine Amendment, He says, is relevant under the decision we issued earlier this term in Ramos. The question in Ramos was this non-unanimous jury verdict. The court held uh, that the states originally adopting those laws did so for racially discriminatory reasons. I argued in dissent that this original motivation, though deplorable, had no bearing on the law's constitutionality because laws can be adopted for non-discriminatory reasons and discriminatory reasons, et cetera. In uh, the Ramos case, it had been readopted, same as this baby Blaine Amendment. He says, but I lost. 
and Ramos is now precedent. <laughs> if the original motivation for the laws mattered there, it certainly matters here. And he goes on. Under Ramos, it emphatically does not matter whether Montana readopted the no aid provision for benign reasons. The provision's quote uncomfortable past must still be examined. And here, it is not so clear that the animus was scrubbed. Uh, so he basically just has an I told you so concurrence for quite some time. And it's fun. It's a fun read to see someone basically sing out their own Toby Keith, how do you like me now? <laughs> concurrence. <laughs> that's a, that's an pulling that song, which is the, it, what a country song. How it's do you like me song. now? It's a great song. Um, no, I, so I, I improperly said I dissent from Thomas's dissent. I dissent from Thomas's concurrence. I sign on to the Alito <laughs> concurrence, mainly not so much for his, uh, you know, how do you like me now aspect of it, but for the history of lesson around the Blaine amendments, um, which was quite compelling. And, and that's, you know, it, it really is fascinating given sort of the current state of American uh, political alignment you know, if you're going to talk to, say, somebody who's 30 years old about um, America's political and religious alignments, and you would tell them that 100 years ago, Protestants and Catholics were like oil and water, cats and dogs, um, abs, and, and it was, and, and in particular, Protestants were in such a dominant position that they could essentially, the public schools were Protestant schools. And they were comprehensively and very busily writing, um, writing into state constitutions anti-Catholic amendments. People would it would seem like, what are you talking about? I mean, wh what really? <laughs> but, but yeah, Alito includes history. like a cartoon. If you want to go look at the cartoon he includes, which is pretty bigoted, um, it's a it's a fun little walk through some bad history of the United States. Uh, and he does have this ending to his opinion, which is great. And I bring it up because when we talk about the dissent, we need to quote this. So this is still Lido. The program helped parents of modest means do what more affluent parents can do, send their children to a school of their choice. The argument that the decision below treats everyone the same is reminiscent of Anatole France's sardonic remark that, quote, the law and its majestic equality forbids the rich as well as the poor to sleep under bridges, to beg in the streets, and to steal bread. <laughs> well, well said, Justice Alito. But then, to skip to the end of Justice Ginsburg's dissent, which is the sort of big dissent, if you will. Yeah. Nearing the end of its opinion, the court writes, a state need not subsidize private education, but once a state decides to do so, it cannot disqualify some private schools solely because they are religious, which was in the... Uh, Robert's opinion. And I thought she's right here. It does that. That is way too much of a simplification of what was going on here. She continues because Montana Supreme court did not make such a decision. It's judgment put all private school parents in the same boat. This court had no occasion to address the matter on that sole ground and reaching no other issue. I dissent from the court's judgment footnote. The Montana Supreme court's decision leaves parents where they would be had the state never enacted a scholarship program, which is true. In that event, no one would argue that Montana was obliged to provide such a program solely for the parents who send their children to religious schools. Also true. 
but CF Alito concurring parentheses inapt reference to Anatoly France's remark. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. We're going to have so to have a pod, you... by the way, on on the CFs. I know we were joking, but we're going to do it because there's some good CFs that we're going to talk about today. CFs, EGs, yeah. yes. Um, In apt reference. I would uh, be interested to know uh, when, say, Alito reads that from Ginsburg, does he chuckle or does he... I, I would tend to think he might chuckle. I would think um, that Justice Thomas would certainly chuckle. I'm not sure that Justice Alito this month <laughs> is in a chuckling state of mind. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, the theme of June is spicy Alito. That is <laughs> absolutely the case. Well, shall we um, move on to our reflections 24 hours later on um, June Medical? Absolutely. Um, so what are your refre- reflections 24 hours later? <laughs> On June Medical. Uh, So we got some emails about this, and uh, there was a footnote in Justice Thomas's uh, dissent all about the Second Amendment. Why is abortion being treated to this heightened level of scrutiny that the Second Amendment doesn't get, and asking us to please um, make sense of this? And I can't, and Justice Thomas can't. And so I thought I would read his footnote. Uh, (laughs) For example, the court has held that attorneys cannot bring suit to vindicate the Sixth Amendment rights of their potential clients due to the lack of a current close relationship. But the court permits defendants to seek relief based on the 14th Amendment equal protection rights of potential jurors whom they have never met. And today, the plurality reaffirms our precedent allowing beer vendors to assert the Fourth Amendment rights of their potential customers, citing a 1976 opinion Craig v. Boren. But it is fair to wonder whether gun vendors could expect to receive the same privilege if they seek to vindicate the Second Amendment rights of their customers. Given this court's ad hoc approach to third party standing and its tendency to treat the Second Amendment as a second class right, their time would be better spent waiting for Godot. (laughs) Uh, First of all, waiting for Godot, the Beckett play. Loved it in high school, just like read it over and over again. Was very pretentious about uh, citing it constantly in high school. So love the reference, very in favor of it. But, and you notice this echoes then what he said today about the free free exercise clause being second class to the establishment clause. So I think what you're seeing here is Justice Thomas pointing out some problems, some hierarchical problems and consistency and maybe hypocrisy in the court's jurisprudence. I wish he would do it more consistently across the spectrum because I think um, similar to how liberals always say that conservatives just aren't funny and that's why all the comedians are liberal. Um, I don't think that's accurate. I don't think that all of the inconsistencies and hypocrisies are on the right as Justice Thomas seems to find them. Well, you know, I think that um, I wrote this a couple of months ago or a month, whatever, Time is is really <laughs> meaningless. Meaningless. <laughs> meaningless at this point. Um, I wrote this some time ago that if there's anything, if you're talking about sort of constitutional conservatism on the right, it has really emphasized the first and second amendments, and not so much four through eight. And if you've talked about <laughs> constitutional, uh, sort of the con- emphasis of civil libertarians on the left, they've really emphasized four through eight, and not so much one and two. Um, and you know, it, it so. It would be interesting to 
look at, take a close look at Thomas's jurisprudence on four through eight, where I'm not always in his camp. I'm, I'm much more in the Gorsuch camp uh, on four through eight. Um, I think of, of the justices, uh, I think, and again, Gorsuch is early in his career. I think he's among the most consistent on one, two, four, five, six, seven, and eight which is one reason why he, he sometimes get this sort of strange new respect from progressive writers on the criminal procedure cases. Oh, wait, Gorsuch, Gorsuch is with us? Well, and this yeah, is the but, Scalia model. Right, exactly. It's the Scalia model. Um, so I, I want to highlight a Politico story. <laughs> yes. um, okay. And it's, the headline is this, conservative groups see abortion ruling as catalyst for reelecting Trump. Uh, the Supreme Court decision. A, a bit of a head scratcher of a headline, I have to say, when I saw it. I, I was head scratching as well. Um, and here's the first two paragraphs Religious and anti abortion groups that helped sweep Donald Trump into office in 2016 say the narrow Supreme Court ruling striking down a Louisiana abortion law only adds fuel to ongoing efforts <laughs> to reelect the president. This November, the conservative groups conceded that in the short term, Monday's 5-4 decision, which invalidated a law that critics said would have forced all but one of the state's abortion providers to close, was a major loss for them in the administration, but they contended it would give them a potent rallying cry to turn out the vote for Trump. Before I uncork on that... Um, Boy, I'm want- young enough to remember last week when the Title Seven and DACA cases meant that we were just abandoning legal conservatism altogether. Yes, the conservative legal movement had failed. Now it's only one justice away from success. And Lucy, if you could just kick that football one more time, I promise I won't move it. Promise. Well, this is going to be a little bit of a foretaste for my Sunday newsletter where I'm going to kind of take a look. The current plan, barring unexpected developments, is to take a more holistic look at the pro-life movement after June Medical. But um, look, y'all... Uh, nine of the last 14 justices of the Supreme Court have been nominated and confirmed under Republican presidents. Nine of the last 14. That's going back from uh, O'Connor forward. Um, You should have had your five votes by now. (laughs) Yes. Now, there is a short wrong answer as to why we don't have, have not have had the five, we have not had the five votes. And there's a longer correct answer. What's the short wrong answer? The short wrong answer as to why there's not been the five votes is that Republican presidents just pick poorly. Mm. And what they should do is do what the Democrats do and bring a nominee in and say, will you vote to overturn Roe? And if the answer is, I don't know, or maybe, or no, then thank you next. Bring in the next person who says, will you vote to overturn Roe? And if the answer is yes, okay, you're in the running. And the reason why, and there's been a lot of, I've saw a lot of, you know, sort of Twitter commentary. It's time we impose the litmus test. Now, here's my longer answer as to why that not only, uh, that will, would not have worked. Sarah, since 1980, can you name me a time when the Republicans could have confirmed <laughs> a justice who said on the witness stand or a, in his testimony, yes, President Bush or President Bush 
um, or President Reagan or President Trump looked me in the eye and said, will you overturn Roe? And I said, yes, sir. Can you so name the, me a time when that justice would have been confirmed? The closest you're going to get is the Gorsuch and Kavanaugh spots. And the problem that you have there is that you have uh, at least two pro-life Republican senators who may and probably would have defected. And then the question is, could you have held on to everyone else without someone defecting because it was just unseemly to have such a litmus test? Uh, a little hard to say, but I think you're probably right. I think until until the end of the f judicial filibuster, the answer is 100% no. Oh, that's, I mean, that's not even in question. The yeah. only time that you even get close is in 2017 and then 2018. Right. And and I think the the consensus, my view watching those hearings unfold was that um, if Gorsuch or Kavanaugh had said, flat out yes to that, immediately their nomination is in question. I mean, their confirmation is in question. Well, it's I mean, not you definitely sunk, lose Collins and Murkowski. Uh, I don't know whether you lose anyone else at that point. But if, you know, in some of these purplish states for the senators who are up for re-election, et cetera, et cetera, I'm thinking Missouri here. I don't know. Well, if you lose Collins and Murkowski, remind me of the alignment for t in 2017 you're sunk right it wasn't 51 uh okay well now you're you're quizzing me too much uh, okay <laughs> you might be right on gorsuch on kavanaugh i think you had two more that you could lose yeah Kav i think kavanaugh there was a little bit more room for error so then that would say of the nine justices confirmed so seven of the nine that were nominated and confirmed would not be on the court if they had said yes i will overturn roe Two of them, maybe one of those two, probably not, and the other one. Oh, but he, but they vote, both voted the right way on June Medical. They did. So they it did. doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, and so that that's why I say, look, if you look at this from the, there's this sort of simplistic lens that says, um, well, look, look at how the Republicans failed. They're just terrible at selecting justices the next Republican is going to be better at selecting justices. They had to get confirmed. They had to get confirmed. And the way, and one of the issues that you have here is one of the issues that has led to a lot of the stagnation in um, abortion law more broadly. There's only been two pro-life laws passed in the past 20 years, and they were passed under George W. Bush, Born Alive Infant Protection Act, and the partial birth abortion ban. The state, the American public has not been in a position to where they're rising up as one to confirm, uh, to nominate and confirm or, or to elect senators who are going to confirm someone who vows to overturn Roe. Um, there, that's just not been the state of the American public. That's not been the state of the Senate. And so at, at the end of the day, sort of sitting there going back and saying, HW, Reagan, HW, and W, you losers. Um, it's just completely misreading the state of American politics over the past, you know, 40 years. That's my thought anyway. Well, uh, real quick, I have some potpourri on CFPB, but it's not okay. really on CFPB. Uh, shout out to Josh Blackman, who wrote this great, <laughs> uh, great piece, uh, at reason.com. And I think we need to have Josh on the podcast when this term is I'd over. I'd love that. Yeah. Um, 
He pointed out some of the great writing in the CFPB opinion coming from Kagan in her dissent. <laughs> he ends with, I encourage people to emulate Robert's style, but don't try to fake Kagan's style. This type of wit cannot be forced. It must come naturally and from within. <laughs> and it was so great. So this is uh, quoting from her dissent. What does the Constitution say about the separation of powers and particularly about the president's removal authority? Parentheses, spoiler alert, about the latter, nothing at all. <laughs> and in another section, this analysis is as simple as it can be. The CFPB director exercises the same powers and receives the same removal protections as that of other constitutionally permissible independent agencies. How could it be that this opinion is a dissent? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Blackman is taken to calling them the two chief justices, uh, John Roberts and Elena Kagan, the de facto chief justice. And the Wall Street Journal has actually agreed with him about that uh, after Bostock and said that, you know, Kagan is doing this great job winning over Roberts and Gorsuch as, uh, as they put it, congratulations to Chief Justice Kagan. <laughs> uh, so just some notes on writing. I think he's right that when you look at the chief's writing style, and this is how he was as an advocate. It's just so precise. There isn't a word to spare, a syllable wasted. And when you look at Kagan's, uh, you want to hang out with her and be friends with her, which is someone who uh, knows her and has gotten some meals with her. But yeah, it's pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you know, um, I we've already said this before about Kagan, but she was much beloved by conservative students at the law school. Yeah, me one of them, so. Yeah, yeah, you one of them. <laughs> much beloved. Yeah, I, I mean, we talked about this before when people went searching for Harvard Law, recent Harvard Law grads to oppose her confirmation. They were thin on the ground. Especially yep. if people had any recollection of the contrast between the Dean Clark regime <laughs> and the Kagan regime. And as I've said, the free tampons, you know, like how can you resist? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is where David goes quiet and I continue to carry the pod. Uh, so some things that we need to get to, David, not on this pod, but I just want to highlight some of the emails that we've gotten that I'm like, yes, we will. Um, one is some of the behind the scenes at the court and what's happening right now in terms of opinions flying between chambers. Um, you know, it used to all be paper. Are they using email more? Uh, how does this sort of work between clerks and justices and these little snide remarks in the dissents? And so uh, one listener had a very good suggestion that we have on a recent clerk. And I think we will have several term wrap-up pods uh, I'd like Josh Blackman for one of them. And I do have a very specific recent clerk in mind as well. So yes, we hear you. You are right. And we will do that after the opinions are done. Yes. Because then we can talk about the opinions with these people, which I think is more fun too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, shall we move on to the challenge? Was issue, Sarah issued a challenge to me yesterday. Is there a movie you don't like, David? Um, which, you know, as I said, by and large, I like the movies I choose to go see. I'm a fan. I'm an enthusiast. It's fun <laughs> to go and have the popcorn and the big screen. And I just want to be clear. He did have difficulty with this assignment, y'all. <laughs> I did. did have to. I did. did. I had difficulty. Um, so before I go, why don't, why don't you kick us off? Oh, I have so many. So okay. starting off the list. Um, I, now... We need to also define our terms here. I am not talking about the Gilles 
or whatever movies that were just actually bad movies. I'm talking about movies right. that other people liked that we did not like. Uh, that's how I'm defining a bad movie. And I realize that's not very textualist, but here we are. <laughs> um, Cloud Atlas, number one, no question. What really in the hell was that? It had such a good cast. I have no idea what happened during that movie. As best I can tell, the only people who really liked that movie liked the books. And maybe if you'd read the books, then the movie had meaning or some plot that was discernible, but the movie had none of those things for me. And Tom Hanks, I, just WTF, man. Uh, anything by Wes Anderson. They're all terrible. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, You're going to cause a riot. <laughs> shape a of riot. Water. That one best picture. What the... Uh, okay. Okay, here's um, though. <laughs> Here's the one that the most people like that I am in the most minority for disliking. It's Inception. I'm sorry. What? I'm sorry. I what? love so many Nolan movies. I do, but I didn't like Inception. Thou hast blasphemed against Nolan. <laughs> Caleb, this our producer, has thrown end. his hands up. He has left. He is not producing this episode anymore. There's one thing you should know about me. I specialize in a very specific type of security. Subconscious security. You're talking about dreams. Ah, sorry. Uh, and then there were just movies that I thought didn't live up to it. La La Land, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Marriage Story, Uncut Gems. Sorry. It's not that they were bad. They just like were overhyped. So you just listed a whole <laughs> bunch of movies that I was astute enough not to see. That's Because fair. I have a pre-clearance process. Um, <laughs> like, like voting pre-clearance? Like section yeah, it's two. like a pre-clearance process. So here's the first question. Mm -hmm. Is this a movie or is this a film? Okay. If this is a film, you're going to have, it's, it better be darn good or I'm just, I mean. What's no. The Graduate? The Graduate is a film and a great movie. The Graduate, the Dustin Hoffman? Yeah, yeah. It is, uh, that's another one I hated. Okay. <laughs> the Graduate is one of the movies, it's one of the movies that made me what? Realize the film movie distinction <gasps> is valid. And what are the chances that I picked that? Okay. Wow. Yeah. So, so first, is it a film or is it a movie? If it's, it, it, if it's a film, then you got to really coax me. Cause I, North I'm by not Northwest. That's a film ne and a movie. Never saw it. Double indemnity. Any of the Hitchcocks really? Uh, never. Wow. I have okay. not. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. He hasn't seen Hitchcock. So if, if it's a film, is it a film or is okay. it a movie? Okay. If it's a movie. Does it have warp drive, oh, hyperspeed, hyper <laughs> uh, any kind of intergalactic combat? Then uh -huh. yes. Okay, I'm going to like it. I'm going to see it. So you just go through this pre-clearance. Pre if it's a comedy, is it a comedy that's supposed to make me think? Or is it a comedy that's most supposed to make me laugh? If it's the And we former, know which one you're going to see. <laughs> yes. Okay, so, so that's why I have such joy in the movie experience. When I mess that up is when I pay. Interesting. Um, see, I like at times seeing movies that I don't like. I think that is actually the fundamental difference. Sometimes I watch a movie knowing that I might not like it because that's, 
it's like the hedonic treadmill, David, like you're just like ramping up so that everything's just better and better. But I need to somehow sometimes have spinach in order to appreciate chocolate cake. (laughs) Well, for me, it's, is it, chocolate cake or is it better chocolate cake? Like that's the, the but distinction. But if you just keep having better and better chocolate cake, then pretty good chocolate cake no longer tastes as good as it does to me. Hmm. I can test that notion. <laughs> but so here, here's where, uh, so I, there's a, n- a number of movies um, okay. I, that there's a genre of movie that I generally, generally like, even though it doesn't fit into that sort of like entertainment versus supposed to teach me something. Is this military history? Yeah. War movies. War movies. War movies. Yeah. Hacksaw Ridge, for instance. I just like, when I think of movies that don't fit into that for you, that you really love, I think Hacksaw Ridge. Yeah. I, I loved Hacksaw Ridge. Platoon, going to see Platoon was a, I mean, that was a, a very memorable moment in my young life, going and seeing that in the theaters and Back in 1925. Yeah. Yes, yeah. 19 it's about the <laughs> Vietnam War, Sarah. It I love was not, it, yeah. And so I mean like that movie, you're not going to that and thinking, "Boy, I'm going to be entertained." It was a gut punch of a movie. Like it was a a gut punch of a movie. But it was a really I mean it was a really good, I'm going to use the word film. It was really really good. Actually, how old were you when you saw Platoon because that's I mean, did your parents take you to see that at a age appropriate? When did Platoon come out? I had a get out of jail free card on R-rated movies for violence. Hmm. Um, Actually, I wait, it was 86. Okay, you're fine. So I was 17. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. I, I just, so I, I was thinking like 13-year-old David's watching Platoon and it's, you know, that's a lot for... That'd be a lot. That'd yeah. be a lot. So after Platoon, I saw this movie that is univer- it's almost universally loved by, by critics. And I walked out of the movie theory theater actually angry that I had watched it. And that was Full Metal Jacket. Um, I just thought I watched, and, and listeners will maybe cause their own riot in the comment section. I just thought I watched two plus hours of nihilism. I think and, you did. It was Kubrick. Yeah, I mean, I know. And did you like a clockwork orange? I have not seen a clockwork orange. Uh, what? Oh my gosh. A clockwork <laughs> orange is a film and it's a film you need to see to appreciate so many other films. But yeah, it's pretty nihilist. If you're ever going to begin. <laughs> Caleb, our producer is just, he's on mute and yelling. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're ever going to begin a, a argument for me to see a movie that is, has the word need in there. Like you need to see it for, uh huh. It's just why, <laughs> why, why do I want to inflict pain upon myself? You know, yeah, for to appreciate the chocolate cake later. Uh huh. As as what was it uh, from the line from Princess Bride? Life is pain, Highness. <laughs> I don't want to pay for the additional, like the additional uh, optional pain, and that's what I felt like with with uh metal jacket it's not that i mean there's a lot of pain in movies like black hawk down there's a lot of pain in movies like saving private ryan and and platoon that is true to the pain of war and conflict um what i i just i just walked out of of um full metal jacket thinking i just it was just nihilism i couldn't i hated it so when the afi's top 100 movies came out and what was that like 98 99 something like that 
Uh, did you watch them? Like, did you go through and have interest in that? I did uh, go through and I to see which ones I would want to watch. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I went through like it was a homework assignment. Oh, did um, you really? Yeah, I, I don't think I've seen every single one, but I basically dedicated a good chunk of high school and college to trying to get through them all. So what are, do you have the do you have the list in front of you? I do. Platoon is number 83. Oh, okay. Uh what are the top 10? Okay, you ready? Yep. Citizen Kane. Have you seen it? Yes. <laughs> and he provides no commentary. Okay, Casablanca, the best. Nope. Should have been What? You haven't seen it? <laughs> I have not seen Casablanca. <gasps> oh, oh my. Okay. The Godfather. <laughs> yes. Gone with the Wind. Yes. Lawrence of Arabia, which I will admit I found it actually pretty difficult to get through because it was so freaking long. Glorious movie. Eh. Wizard of Oz. Yes. <gasps> number seven, The Graduate. <laughs> uh, number eight, On the Waterfront. Nope. Number nine, Schindler's List. No. Number 10, Singing in the Rain. No. <laughs> Still... <laughs> Okay, number 13, The Bridge on the River Kwai. Yes. Okay, so the war movies maybe we can like get through here. Uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Yes, great. Okay. They didn't quite have warp drive, but still. It was I close. Mean, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Strangelove, sort of a war movie, but nope, kind of not. Didn't mm -hmm. see Dr. Strangelove. No. Guys, okay, so this is interesting because this whole time I've thought that David is just this like huge culture buff. But in fact, he's not a culture buff. He's a very specific non-film culture buff. <laughs> I think Steve Hayes has seen more of these movies than you have, David. That could well be true. Oh but my. you know, it's also hard to see all of that stuff while you're playing a lot of Dungeons and Dragons and gaming a lot. I mean, there's, you know, only so many hours of the day. Watching Casablanca with other dudes might be weird. <laughs> True. I do. That is a hole in the repertoire. I do need to see it. But I think people are like are screaming at the the at their uh, uh, iPhones right now at, um, about my cultural ignorance. Also, just because I have to mention it. Number 31, Annie Hall. Oh, I have seen that. I know he hates Woody Allen. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Uh, I, that's where, this is where I have to tell the story on myself. And, um, when I was dating Nancy, my wife, we dated for six weeks before we got engaged and there were two great deceptions. I unspooled in those six weeks. Uh, deception number one was that I liked films, specifically Woody Allen films <laughs> th that she loved. So I spent many hours in our dating relationship, watching Woody Allen movies and talking about them at length afterwards. Um, and then deception number two was that I was only a moderate sports fan. Just, <laughs> I could kind of take it or leave it. And then that one blew up when the very weekend after we got back from our honeymoon, uh, I said to Nancy, I'm, I've got to, I've got to head out. She said, where are you going? I said to my fantasy baseball draft, see you in about 10 hours. <laughs> so that's how, that's how I, uh, burst through that deception. Still but married. Still, still married. married. Almost, it's coming up on 25 years. So I, I don't recommend a six week uh, dating relationship laden with deception about your pop culture interests, but hey, it worked out.
you know, there may be more to it than you think. (laughs) All right, Sarah, anything else before we sign off? The court has not said when they're releasing the next set of opinions, but when they do, we will be potting and we will certainly pod on Thursday. Yes. So we will definitely see you Thursday and we'll see you the next time the Supreme Court releases opinions. Until then, um, thanks for listening. And again, please go rate us at Apple Podcasts. And if you're not a member of thedispatch.com, please go check out thedispatch.com and think about becoming a member. We would appreciate it very much. Thank you all for listening.